you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From LAist Studios, this is Off Ramp. I'm John Raby. Thank you so much for joining us. And I've got something very special for you today. It's a full-length documentary about a woman you need to know about. A few days ago, at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, a group of friends gathered to celebrate what would have been the 100th birthday of one of the most remarkable women in television. You have to go back to the 1950s and think about what was happening there. A lot of local TV stations. It was a little bit like the Wild West, a little bit like pre-code Hollywood. People did stuff on TV that would seem shocking in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, in the pre-cable days. Uh, and, and the person I'm, t- I'm focusing on right now is a woman named Myla Nurmi, M-A-I-L-A-N-U-R-M-I, a Finnish name. In 1954, she shocked the world, literally, as sexy horror host Vampira on KABC-TV. She rocketed to national and then worldwide stardom and then quickly faded. She died in 2008. In 2010, filmmaker and documentarian and off-ramp producer R.H. Green produced a full-length documentary for us called Vampira and Me, which he later turned into a film. So today, to mark the 100th birthday of Myla Nermi, Vampira, the blueprint for Elvira, let's listen to R.H. Green's Vampira and Me. Think of her as a long shadow cast by the first cathode blast of the television tube, a nightmare creature out of erotic fantasy. Monster, comedienne, vision in the mist, the original riot girl, and a birth mother to hipster irony. She just came roaring, (laughs) roaring at you. She was a real firebrand. Comedian and writer Dana Gould. People think of, like, because of the image of Vampira, that she was this sort of goth, mordant, couldn't have been further from the truth. She was this sort of bubblegum-popping, beatnik, hipster chick. Above all, think of Myla Nearmi as Vampira, because she'd want you to do that. She was always very proud of the iconic status she managed to achieve. To me, though, she'll always be Myla, a unique presence and a lesson in laughter, perseverance, and showbiz tragedy. only for the cool cats. The sterile creeps can crawl out now. I've never met a more alert, vibrant, or vivacious person than Myla Nearmi, and we only got to know each other during her 70s and the late-breaking Indian summer of her tempestuous life. She was a regal beauty then, lined, gray-haired, and impoverished, but royalty in exile all the same. I can just imagine her during her heyday. A spirited and unearthly beauty with her arched eyebrows, impossibly slim waist, mesmeric eyes, and high Scandinavian cheeks. It's ironic, but Myla is known to most people for a smallish movie role where she didn't even speak. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampire. That silent performance came in the infamous 1959 cult film, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Myla claimed to have thrown her Plan 9 dialogue away because she recognized, as millions have since, how bad director Ed Wood's script was. You see, 
You see? You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. That's all I'm taking from you. Get back here, you jerk! Would build Mila in the Plan 9 credits as Vampira, though, and the entranced, robotic Vampira of Plan 9 is the image most people have of her in their heads today. The television Vampira was a gothic wiseacre, the first TV horror host in a camp style later embraced by Mila's reluctant nemesis, Elvira, and actor Ernie Anderson, a.k.a. Goulardi. Tonight's movie group has holes in it. Only the Swiss could love. I interviewed Mila on camera in 1997 for Schlock, The Secret History of American Movies, my documentary about exploitation films. At the time, we'd been friends for three years. I'd written about her in 1994, an article that currently stands as the biography on the official Vampira website. Over the next hour, we'll be drawing from these sources and from transcripts of other interviews I conducted with her. I used only a few minutes of Myla in Schlock, but Myla and I agreed that someday I'd use the 70 or so minutes of video we collaborated on to find a way to let her speak. What follows is the belated fulfillment of that promise, and also a first-person testament from someone who would have been remarkable even if the world never found out about her. When I knew Myla, she'd lost none of her charm, wit, or energy. Betrayal is a motif in her story, so she had lost some of her trust in people. But for some reason we never discussed, she decided to trust me. What'd you do that for? Been wondering whether I'd like it. What's the decision? We began our conversation by talking about Mila's early and rather frustrating tenure in Hollywood, where she was briefly under personal contract to Howard Hawks, the director who paired Bogart and Bacall into Have and Have Not and The Big Sleep. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. I wonder if you could start by telling me about Howard Hawks and your original arrival in Hollywood. Well, let's see. When I was a young actress of 17, I mean a young lady of 17, I... Tried first to crack Los Angeles, but nothing happened here, so I joined a magazine t crew and crossed the country to get to Broadway and somehow wormed my way into a Mae West show. Catherine was great. And from that, I got a glorious review in The Hollywood Reporter, and Howard Hawks saw it and sent for me. He said, you know, come to Hollywood. I think that was 1945, and uh, he wanted me... He had just brought Lauren Bacall in and maybe six months before so I was to be the new Lauren Bacall. And and what happened uh, to you under Howard Hawks' tutelage? Uh, well they brought me here saying I was a million dollar property and we don't traffic with anything but and uh, and when I came here they didn't even know I was here you know they ignored me they gave me $75 a week and I sat in my rooming house waiting for them to call. I didn't like Howard Hawks I thought he was stupid. Hmm? So I tore my contract up into, said, kindly find a place for this in one of your numerous wastebaskets. And they did. Hawks allegedly fell in love with Bacall, and Myla resembled her a bit physically. It's a backdrop to her first Hollywood experience that seems pertinent to me. Decades later, uh, Hawks was speaking to uh, the film school at USC, and somebody asked him, he was talking about the ladies he had discovered you know, the actresses. And somebody brought up my name and he said, that's one, that's the one that got away. You were a model for a while, a sometime cheesecake model. Oh, which yes. Is a, a term that for us is kind of, a, we don't know what that means exactly. What is a cheesecake model? And what was it for you? What is a cheesecake model? Ah, it's a young bunny in a bikini. <laughs> I was trying to be cute. 
No, we had two kinds of cheesecake models in America at that time. On the East Coast, they were doing what Betty Page did. You know, they were being lurid, you know, in, in lacy, under, in black underwear. But on the on the this coast, there was very little of it. But what there was was surfer. We were surfer girls, you know, little sunbathing girl next doors. And it was very hard for me to look like a girl next door. But I strived to, and I became one of the ten top, ten top pinup models in America. But that didn't pay anything. And and around what time would this have been? 1948 through 51. But what we did was we worked for tear sheets and hoped that Howard Hughes would see our picture in a magazine and give us a movie contract. That's what it was all about. By later standards, things like cheesecake modeling or exotic dancing in the 40s, how would it compare to the the kind of erotic stuff that came on down the pike later? Oh, no, it's not the same thing at all. We were just sunny little personalities, lightly clad, you know, happily enjoying the sunshine and the surf. We weren't coming on to anyone, (laughs) you know. So we weren't sorted. No, we weren't sorted. It was wholesome cheesecake. By 1951, Myla Nearmi was a failed Hollywood starlet who was just about to turn 30. She'd had some success as a model in the relatively chaste forms of erotica that were socially acceptable in her time, but she hadn't parlayed it into anything more substantive. But all that was about to change, thanks to luck, opportunism, and a new and industry-changing technology. What I need is a vampire cocktail to settle my nerves. It'll not only settle them, it will petrify them. The pre-Elvis post-war era is thought of as a sleepy time of conservatism and political reaction, but currents of rebellion were underway. One of the earliest came in the form of ghoulish New Yorker cartoons by the great Charles Adams, who set a family of grinning monsters loose against the reigning tyranny of normalcy. Adams' creations might be found in a movie house, laughing their way through a scene that reduced every other patron to tears and he seemed to have a real chip on his shoulder toward America's most sacrosanct holiday. Perhaps his most famous panel showed his cheerful monsters poised on a rooftop, about to empty a cauldron of boiling oil onto a semicircle of Christmas carolers. Shocking stuff in those days. Myla Nurmi was an instinctive rebel herself, so it was inevitable she'd be influenced by Adam's anarchism and black comedy. But first, she had to find her medium. It turned out it wasn't movies after all, but a brand new domestic appliance the broadcast TV. Do you remember the first time you saw a television program, and if so, what that experience was like? Mm, that's an interesting question. I do. It uh, was a Sid C- Imogene Cook on Sid Caesar? The Sid Caesar show, I guess it was called. I wonder if you tell our audience exactly who this lady is. I don't know who she is, but so right me. I was just mesmerized. Just mesmerized and a little frightened. Because it was, you know, something new. We always fear what we don't understand. I was a little frightened by it, even though it was comedy. Just thought, gee, oh, strange, wonderful, strange. What was the general reaction? What was your sense of the way people reacted when suddenly this new thing appeared in the country? I don't know that I was um, busy evaluating the world at large in those days, but uh, I saw an opportunity for myself. I said... Everybody's jumping onto this new bandwagon, and uh, they're looking for talent, and God knows I've been a monologist since I was born. 
the thing that was most popular at that time, locally here anyway, was a show called The Webster's. And it was a daytime soap, in effect, family serial. And I thought, that's what they want, and so that's what I'm going to do. But then I thought, but that's too, I can't do it exactly that way, it's too wholesome. I don't like to do wholesome people. I don't like to dwell on their very existence, you know, let alone pretend to be one. So I thought, well, let's satirize them. Let's take some very unwholesome people and have them behave as though they think they are wholesome, you know. And now, oh, no, no, Charles Adams already did that. Myla kicked the idea of an Adams Family TV series around where she could, but she wasn't really moving in the circles where production decisions get made. What happened next is a real-life Cinderella story, with more claim on the cliché than most. Because like Cinderella, the turning point for Myla came at a fancy dress ball. In this case, choreographer Lester Horton's annual Hollywood masquerade, the Bal Carib. I went as the then-unnamed Morticia Adams. I bound my bosoms and I wore a little bit of pale mauve, white makeup and a little bit of pale mauve powder so that it looked as though I'd been entombed, you know. And I wore sheer lavender nylon gloves and... Everything was vaguely deathly in tone. And, and I went to the Balkari, looking to be discovered for television, actually, hoping that somebody would get on the ball and supply the rest of the family for me in a vehicle. But instead, I got discovered just for myself alone at a local station, KBC TV Channel 7, uh, approached me. The producer was named uh, Hans Stromberg Jr. He wanted me to work alone without the uh, entire family. You know, without Charles Adams or the family, but just to do the Charles Adams character. We can't do that. I said, it belongs to Charles Adams. It's not my character. So I said, well, give me a few days. I didn't want to say a flat no. They were like offering money so, <laughs> and some help of some kind. So I said, give me a few days. And I came back with uh, a vampire. I, may, I still kept the dress. I knew they liked the dress. I kept the dress and the black hair. But I turned her into a vamp. I gave her platform shoes and fishnet stockings, and I slit the dress up. And I took a lot of things from a magazine called Bizarre. And, you know, I, I, I didn't know what a dominatrix was, but that's obviously what I was emulating. This, I cinched the waist, and I wore a long phallic cigarette holder and long phallic fingernails, and, you know. And then I made the mouth very wet with lip gloss, very bloody red, and then... And, 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 so that it appeared, almost appeared to be dripping as though I just finished with a victim. I didn't actually have fangs, but uh, I tried to imply that I had them. And um, okay, they went with it. I said, fine. Then they wanted a name for it, and my, my husband named, supplied the name Vampira, and they said, great, and we went off with it. A vampire cocktail. You like it? It hates you. Only two minutes of footage from The Vampire Show exists, and it's of extremely poor quality. It was shot on film off a television monitor in 1954 as a KABC promotion for advertisers. Otherwise, The Vampire Show went out live in an era before videotape, and nothing of it is known to survive. However, if you want to use some garnish, you can drop in an eyeball. If you happen to have an extra one around the house... Myla and I were already friends when the existing footage was uncovered. I remember worrying the first time I watched it that Myla wouldn't live up to the vampire in my head. Our little fairy tale tonight It's called The Thirteenth Guest. She's riveting, actually. 
the 13 makes it timely, topical, and terrifying. It's about a humorous fellow who dies telling a joke. Something of a deadpan comedian. Here. Let me darken the room, and we shall commence. It was the time of Marilyn Monroe. Myla's buxom, appallingly narrow-waisted creation was, among other things, a gothic parody of the national obsession with the hourglass figure. Vampira embodied feminine strength in the midst of a popular culture that exalted female submission. And with the baby boom detonating all around her, her impossible midriff made it seem as if she didn't have a womb. You recorded physical dimensions in 1954. 38, 17, 36. How in the name of God did you keep your waist at 17 inches? Oh, well, that was body sculpting and all kinds of tricks I used, but I didn't keep it that way. My waist was 17 on Saturday night, but on Monday, I didn't dare measure it. <laughs> because I was so hungry from two days of fasting that I would just, you know, eat lots of food. But I, ha I used a lot of tricks. For one thing, I went to the steam bath every Friday night to dehydrate everything, right? And then... I ate, when Friday morning I woke, I said, this is it, two days of fasting. I didn't eat anything Friday. Friday night, I steamed away. Saturday, I ate nothing, and then Saturday night, I cinched. And if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be able to get into my costume. So I was forced to do it, like it or no. I was forced to fast for two days. And I had, to get my waist down in the first place, I had invented a spot-reducing cream. I knew that that uh, steaks were tenderized with something that broke down the fiber, broke down the cells. And I thought if I found out that what that was, maybe I could break down the living flesh. Yeah. And it was papaya powder. So I went and got some papaya powder and mixed it with my cold cream and slavered it on my waist and wrapped a rubber inner tube around. We didn't have plastic uh, stuff then, you know. So I wet, wrapped this rubber around and slept in it. Well, it would perspire and open up the pores, and then it would eat this papaya powder, and I digested the flesh away. That's uh, talking about suffering for your art. Yeah. Uh, today they have such a cream, and you pay about $35 for a tiny little bottle that'll maybe do a, an inch, you know. You're listening to Vampira and Me, a full-length radio documentary from R.H. Green. This is Off-Ramp from LAS Studios, and we'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Welcome back to Off Ramp. I'm John Raby. Today we are celebrating the 100th birthday of Myla Nurmi, better known as Vampira by listening back to the 2010 radio documentary from R.H. Green called Vampira and Me. I interviewed Myla Nirmi, a.k.a. Vampira, repeatedly in the mid to late 1990s, and we were also friends. In 1997, 
Myla sat for a comprehensive conversation about her life and career, a portion of which was excerpted in a documentary I made called Schlock, The Secret History of American Movies. At the time of our conversation, there was no known footage of The Vampire Show, so I introduced Myla in Schlock by reconstructing a typical Vampire Show opening. The segment began the way all discussions about vampires should. <coughs> with a scream. That wasn't a good one. <laughs> Sounded pretty good to me. <laughs> that was the wrong one. <laughs> in 1954, Los Angeles audiences attuned to the strange new medium of live television discovered an even stranger entity invading their living rooms. The show was a local sensation, and its hostess was a necrophiliac's delight who went by the stage name Vampira. From its opening shot, The Vampira Show promised audiences something different. And Myla Nurmi, the girl behind the ghoul, made sure it delivered. Well, initially, the viewer sees a long corridor with many candelabra and dry eyes, and far away a doorway, which opens. <coughs> they can hear it way down at the end of the corridor. And then far away, they see this infanta silhouette slowly approaching through the mist, slowly approaching through the mist. And, and, and as it gets close enough, the viewer sees that it's a creature apparently in a trance drifting closer, closer, closer to the camera. And when she reaches, almost reaches the viewer, she suddenly screams a blood-curdling scream. And then says, screaming relaxes me so. As if she's having, having just had an orgasm. I mean, that was my thought. And that was what I was trying to imply in a ladylike manner. <laughs> Here, on this small local show created to showcase bargain basement horror films in a late-night comedy format, sex and death, two American obsessions often suppressed from the wider culture of the day, arrived in one outrageous and alluring package. Something you miss by hearing that clip without seeing it. Buried among the sound effects, there's the classic horror trope of a creaky door opening. They can hear it way down at the end of the corridor. Except that isn't a sound effect. That's Myla. That effortless gift for mimicry and surprise, coupled with her insistence that she simulated orgasms in a ladylike manner, gives some idea of why those who knew her loved her so. How about this, the format of the show? What would a person expect to see on a typical Then, after that's the opening, and then I would say, you know, then Vampiro would say, you know, I hope you've had the good fortune to have had a, a perfectly miserable week, and I have a surprise for you tonight. We are going to see, and then I'd enunciate the name of the film, that I was going, that we were going to show. Commercial, cut to commercial. And then when we open, we're on this main set, and we have f about five segments with commercial breaks, about five breaks in the film. And, and the, the film would typically be what sort of? Typically, well, we were, we were, presumably we were showing sci-fi and horror, presumably we were showing horror, but the good uh, universal films were not available. They were caught up somehow, legally, that they were not available for rent. We were able to get some few little horror films from, I think, monogram kind of quality, things like uh, Voodoo Island, no, no, Voodoo Island came later, we had uh, White Zombie, we had... Uh, Island of Lost Souls, we had The Frozen Dead, films like that. But more often than not, 
we weren't we ran out of those films. There weren't that many available. We showed Raymond Chandler type d- detective stories and tried to pretend that they were horror. You know, we did the best we could for what we could rent for a hundred dollars. And um, how would you take a movie that was, say, a detective movie and pretend that it was like a horror? Well, my writer was a genius. Peter Robinson was a genius. <laughs> he knew how to trans transpose that. Um, but we would always say, you know, if something happy had happened on the thing, we'd say, oh, what a tragedy, that poor darling. You know, something good had happened to her. And, of course, when miserable things happened, we would say, well, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> so we just sort of dumbly went on with it. And uh, there were sketches, too, weren't there? Oh, yeah. Well, Vampira was like a one-woman Saturday Night Live. I did a lot of characters. I'd be, uh, once I was Groucho Marx, she wore the eyebrows, you know. And, uh, you know, very quickly I would just do the illusion, you know how you do a little bit, suggest the character, pull the hair back very quickly, or put on spectacles if you're a, sometimes... Once when Jimmy Dean was on the show, I was a librarian, and I wrapped his knuckles. He was a naughty boy. Um, how just how radical uh, an idea was the whole vampire show format character for fifties? Well, it was unheard of. Fortunately for me, my producer was a brave and crazy young man. He was a he had fanatic ideas, and I myself have uh, little fanatic instincts deeply buried, and he brought them to the fore. So we worked well together. It was just unheard of. Society was alarmed. And delighted. <laughs> the Vampira Show was local and live in a time without videotape, which made it perishable regional TV. But Myla's background as a cheesecake model stood her in good stead. There are hundreds of publicity shots of her in character and they form an important part of the Vampira legacy. To me, it is like the godmother of goth. It is the godmother of the alternative movement in terms of the classic reigning beauty. Gothic photographer Gabrielle Geiselman. The long, dark hair, the, you know, silky, the curve, the corseting. I mean, huge movements have come out of this. She affected so many different elements, you know, down to the nails, down to the shoes. If you think about it and you really start picking it apart, you realize she's the original. She's absolutely the original. And yes, she is an amalgamation of all these different things that came before her, but she's the first person who put it together and made it dangerous. In still photos, Vampira is the antithesis of the famous 50s fetish model Betty Page. Page's appeal has been described as her ability to maintain a girl-next-door wholesomeness in squalid contexts. Vampira never wields a whip, and she's far too imperious for some smut peddler to bind or gag. Instead, she fills the most mundane settings with sexual tension and black comedy. Both women embodied the contradictions of an era that venerated the American female, but also saw her as a virtual house slave. If Betty Page somehow brought 50s ideas about female purity into the dungeon, Vampira brought the dungeon into the living room, the kitchen, and onto the welcome mat where her presumably cowering house guests wiped their feet. The power of these images is the only possible explanation for a small local show's unprecedented popularity. What kind of impact did the Vampira show have? I think the world stood still. 
got fan mail from all over the world. I don't think that's happened even yet from a local show. We weren't advertised, by the way. We scarcely advertised. I mean, the studio did not spend money to advertise because everybody automatically wrote about it. She advertised herself, you know. Writers just wanted to, journalists wanted to remark on it and comment on it. So we got lots of press without having to buy any. But uh, people were just astonished. We got into Life magazine. Which I've seen, which it shows you on the set and in the vampire character. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the important thing to remember, I think, for, for people who might see that, uh, reprinted or something, is we're talking about a local show. Oh, it, that's unusual, I guess, for a local show. To yeah, a national magazine audience is getting these photos, yeah. uh, and, and most of whom don't have the show available to them, right? Right, right. So that's, a, that's an amazing right. demonstration of the character's impact. Oh, yes. Um, how about locally? How did things change for you around town? Well, I became the girl of the minute. If you can imagine what uh, Pamela Anderson was when she first burst forth on Baywatch, you know, I was the number one item around for five minutes. <laughs> Everybody, firstly, we didn't reveal my identity. We remained, she remained mysterious. And under all that makeup, who is under there? Everybody wanted to know who is that really? And we didn't tell, you know, for a while. So we kept so that everybody wanted to know who is who really is under that cost in that costume who's under there. So everybody would have anybody almost anybody in town would have invited me in for a moment at, for, to a dinner party just long enough to find out who I was at least you know. Sort of the received mindset about what the fifties were like is that it was a very repressive time, and here you are doing a character who is based in part on a Bondage magazine who is overtly sexual who is a combination of sex and death, all these interesting psychological cross-currents, and it comes out in, in the market that it's in, boom, it's this explosion. Why do you think that is, given the, the culture of the time? Well, it was time for a revolution, a cultural revolution, right? And this was one of the early pss, missives fired out. I know with me it was just... I was rebelling, you know, intense. It was a violent rebellion because I was utterly stifled by the the contrition everywhere, contrition. You know, everything was so corseted. Ugh, I hated it. And I was not alone, obviously. This whole thing was seething. You know, people wanted to be unloosed. They wanted some freedom. Freedom of expression, freedom of everything, you know. Less hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> The question is, what makes kids from nice homes do things like this? You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! At the height of her own personal, professional, and televisual revolution, Myla Nurmi found a kindred spirit in another enduring icon of rebellion, actor James Dean. People, why should you be the only one involved? But I am involved. We are all involved. Mama. A lot has been written and said about the Myla Dean relationship, including a 50s scandal sheet article so outrageous. Myla told me she attempted suicide when it came out. During the long period when she was a forgotten figure, Myla was accused by some of exploiting Dean's memory. Hedda Hopper quoted the dead actor as saying he had befriended Myla because of his studies of the Golden Bough and the Marquis de Sade. But he dropped her when he, quote, found her void of any true interest except her vampire makeup. If Dean actually said that, he was torturing history, because here are some facts. 
There is an extant photo of Dean gooning around in full Boris Karloff Frankenstein makeup with Myla's sidekick Jack Simmons. Hardly an image of Dean and Myla conversing about Proust. A memo in the Warner Brothers archives also mentions a set visit from one Vampira when Dean was shooting Rebel Without a Cause. And the scandal sheet article Myla said perverted public perceptions? That exists too. On a personal note, I have to say that anybody who knew Myla at all knows she felt Dean's absence as an enduring loss. During the interview you're listening to, she was wearing a large crucifix that dangled just out of frame. She touched it when she spoke about him, and her eyes were full of tears. You're listening to Vampira and Me, a full-length radio documentary from R.H. Green. This is Off Ramp from Elias Studios, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Welcome back to Off Ramp. I'm John Raby. Today we are celebrating the 100th birthday of Myla Nurmi, better known as Vampira, by listening back to the 2010 radio documentary from R.H. Green called Vampira and Me. In mid-50s Hollywood, there was a pecking order. At the bottom were upstarts like Myla and James Dean. Um, you, you were kind of a, then in the vanguard of this next generation of attitude and talent that came in and came of age here in Hollywood. I wonder, at the time, was there any sense that, that the old guard was looking askance, that there was a kind of a generational? Oh, it was very pronounced. It was very pronounced. And we saw it mo- most clearly at Googie's, which was next to Schwab's, because the old guard was in Schwab's still. They were established, big money actors, they would do their business there and hang out there. And the new guard, the new people that came from New York, came from Broadway, hung out in Googies. And we were ready to have a rumble, the Googieites and the Schwabaroonies. Ready to have a rumble. <laughs> they were frightened. And at Villa Capri, Humphrey Bogart and the Rat Pack were terrified of Jimmy Dean when East of Eden was sneaked. Terrified of him. Because their careers were sinking. And he was the harbinger of the new things to come. And um, They were cruel to him. Really? In what way? They called him over to their table and he said to us, oh, he was sitting with us, he said, oh, the movie stars want me, I'm going to see the movie stars, I'm going to sit with the movie stars. He was so happy. He went and sat with him and they tore him to pieces. He was in tears and they continued to attack him. I asked Myla how she met Dean and got a surprisingly metaphysical response. Well, we knew one another long ago in another life, of course, maybe many other lives, but in this life, in this life, uh, I, um, went, I went to a premiere, a Hollywood premiere. I went as a viewer alone, and I sat in the bleachers with a little camera. I went as a fan. I went to observe the scene because I thought, now that I have the key to the city, I want to see what the city is made of. I'll see where I want to use this key. And there was nobody I wanted to meet. I saw many people I wanted not to meet. And there was nobody I wanted to meet except one fellow. He arrived escorting Terry Moore. And he was 
very uncomfortably wearing. He was uncomfortable in a tuxedo, in a rented tuxedo, and his cowlick was unmanageable. And he was surly and angry, and I wanted to meet him, and that was James Dean. Of course, I didn't know then who it was. But the next day, when I was in a coffee shop, he came in, as it were, and instantly we were magnetized to one another, psychically drawn, you, you karmically drawn. We recognized one another. And we knew one another instantly, thoroughly, throughout and forever. Each of us was brave and terrified at one and the same time. It's, it's a skitchy thing. You're terrified, but in, in you're, you overcome your terror because inclination, there are inclinations in you that you can't stop. You know, to become rebellious and make trouble for yourself. That isn't why you do it, but you, as a as a sideline, you make trouble for yourself. We saw that in one another immediately. We knew we were the same kind of soldiers, and how few of us there were, and we needed to stick together. Why do you think uh, Dean's screen persona spoke so deeply to the young people of the 1950s? What was what was different about the kids that came of age after the war as opposed to the people that had come before? I don't know. I know that I know what they needed from him, and I don't know why they needed it more than other kids earlier. I know they needed uh, the, the the teenage the preteens now felt who were just coming into adulthood felt uh, more alienated from their parents than they ever had before. I think. I mean, they were just extremely alien. Felt very alienated and had nowhere to turn. And because I think youth groups weren't organized or anything, they had nowhere to turn. And so Jimmy came along as a sort of rosary bead for them. Something, you know, the the Jim Stark character came along as uh, something, someone for them to confide in. They could secretly take him at, into their hearts and feel that he, they were his confidant. And so if they couldn't turn to their parents, they could think of Jim Stark and tell him. It was a need, but I don't know why they had that need more than, than before the war. I don't know why. Because when you say um, that you and he recognized each other as soldiers and that there were so few of you, within only a very short time after his death, there'd be millions of you. you yeah, know? yeah. There'd be a million soldiers in the, yeah. fighting on that side. Yeah, but still, and it's, it's, it's more than that, too, because Jimmy was from another planet, and so was I. But then there are a lot of those people, too. You know, he was the little prince. I don't know which planet I came from, but that's what we both were. We were both aliens stranded here. Couldn't find our way back to the planet. We didn't know how we got here, but we at least could commiserate. Hi, stranger, I know how you feel. <laughs> you can't find your planet. <laughs> right, you know. So of course it was comfortable, but now there are a lot of those people who feel alienated on Earth. Lots of them. Shortly after Dean's death, the confidential magazine-style scandal sheet called Whisper ran an article titled "James Dean's Black Madonna," with Dean and Mila as vampires splashed across the cover. In what Whisper called the most chilling and tragic love story in Hollywood history, Dean's death was linked to Myla's supposed witchery. It was a lasting wound to her, and much of her later campaign to insist on their closeness can be viewed as an attempt to rectify it.
How much money did you make off the vampire character when she was on the air? Well, my take home from the studio was $59.60 a week, you know, after taxes. And I spent all of that on body makeup and ta taxi cabs. But my husband supported me. Fortunately, he was earning some money. And um, how long did the show run for? How, how many On years? Channel 7, it, well, I did 54 segments, so that's a, a year and two weeks. But then I was, um, a year and a half later, I was on Channel 9 for 13 weeks. And um, how, how was it that the ending of the, of the show came about? Well, um, ABC hadn't initially wanted to do My program director, who discovered me, wanted to do it, but the executives said, no, what is this? You know, so we had to persuade them. And uh, so we were able to persuade them because it was a, a dead time slot late at night, a dead time slot we go on, right? And uh, very little money. So, all right, something to dress up the trash at midnight, you know. So they allowed us to be on, but they weren't going to, they wouldn't go for the expense of it, the entire Adams family. You know. But now when they saw the immense, it was the most successful thing on the station. On Halloween we got 2,000 phone calls from housewives wanting to know how to dress as Vampira. And uh, so they realized that vampires on television were indeed very good. So then they decided that they needed to own the concept. And they were leasing it from me, they were leasing 49%. Uh, it was my idea to give them 49%. I wanted to give them as much as I possibly could without losing control because I appreciated the fact that they were taking me out of uh, obscurity. But then they decided they wanted to own it and put me out of commission. So they did. They blacklisted me so they could make the Adams Family, which they leased. And I mean, they just got a, paid a royalty fee or whatever permission from Charles Adams, but they... Uh, owned a lot of the rights that way. And, and do you think that the Adams Family TV series, for example, came about directly as a result of the... Oh, yeah. The only film, the only thing they had to look at was my show at ABC, and, and Carolyn Jones took a lot of my personal mannerisms and everything. She had nowhere else. She's a good actress, but she had nowhere else to go, you know, for unless she wanted to, you know, just create. But you do always do some research if, if there is research available, you know. Um... What happened to you after uh, after the show was over? Well, I was... Uh, I have very low self-esteem. Still, I guess. But I had even more so. It was worse then. And when I got blacklisted, I took it very personally. I thought I'm um, people find me objectionable. So I hid my head. I mean, I hid myself altogether. I went into reclusion. Um, should we take a break for a second? Sure. Let's take a break for a second. The exact details of what happened between Myla and KBC are sketchy, but what is clear is that there were issues over ownership of the Vampira character. By some accounts, there was a plan to syndicate Vampira nationally by casting other actresses as regional versions, an idea Myla balked at. Because the prototype of the character was designed by Myla for her appearance at the Bal Karib, there was little anyone could do to deprive her of her intellectual property. But she lost her forum, and like other Hollywood Cinderella's before her, she drifted into obscurity. Somewhere in there, she met Ed Wood, and in 1959, she appeared in Plan 9 from Outer Space, in her old costume, but not as Vampira. She called the character Myla in an Alpha State, at least when she referred to it in front of me. The So Bad It's Good cult discovered Myla in Plan 9, though she never seemed to quite fit with the other misfits and has-beens Wood gravitated toward. 
because unlike Tor Johnson and Bela Lugosi, Milo was a pioneer of postmodern irony. She wasn't just in on the joke, she invented it, or so it's always seemed to me. She didn't really have a lot of people in her life. She divorced in the mid-50s, never had kids, had had bad experiences with people that were fans or crazy James Dean fans that thought she had cursed him. You know, just all sorts of nightmare garbage. Comedian Dana Gould befriended Myla in the mid-1990s. Like others who came into her orbit, he loved her wit and energy. He stayed around long enough to also sense a certain tragedy. Um, we had to, we just became friends, and I, I really, I just really came to, came to love her. I, I, she shouldn't have been available to me. She should have had ten grandkids, and be living in Glendale, <laughs> you know, and not have time for thirty-two-year-old Plan Nine freaks. I did a long interview with Myla about her lost years, and the details are both heartbreaking and scary. The one that stays with me, though, isn't about hard times, bad breaks, or crazed fans. It's about constancy. Here's a reading by my friend Jennifer Van Gertham of what Myla said. Well, I stayed camera-ready for 20 years. Literally. Talk about naivete. I was an incurable romantic. I may still be. I kept my figure within three days ready to get back into Vampyra. And then I thought, well, even if they offered me something new, it would be pathetic. A woman my age maintaining a figure like that. How sad. So I decided to stop staying camera ready, and I sort of got the idea they weren't going to call. I, I think in a lot of ways it just it ruined her life. That constant struggle to control this thing, at the end of the day, it didn't get her anything. Sometimes the harder you squeeze something, the more you lose it. In 1994, I used the excuse of a movie magazine I was working for to seek Myla out. My timing was fortuitous because her story wasn't over, and it was headed toward an ending that was relatively happy. She was living in poverty then, having lost a lawsuit against the star of what became Elvira's movie Macabre. The original idea had been to revive the Vampira character, and Myla had been working on it with Elvira's original producers. But when Myla left the project over creative differences, a syllable got altered, an earthier ghoul girl took to the airwaves, and Cassandra Peterson became the most successful horror hostess ever to appear on TV. I'm ashamed to admit this, but confusion about the relationship between the two characters extended to my own work. I've never been called on it by Myla or anyone else, but I actually referred to the Vampira show as Movie Macabre twice on the Schlock DVD. Myla and I bonded instantly. She said I looked like Brando, an alleged lover, as was Orson Welles, by the way, but not, it should be said, her pal Jimmy Dean. The release of Tim Burton's Ed Wood biopic brought Myla renewed attention, and she even made selective appearances at fan conventions, an activity she was always skeptical about in my presence. But it was money, and she was in need. She had trouble walking, and her eyesight was very bad. I once saw her talk to a fan in the auditorium of the Beverly Garland Hotel without even noticing the girl had given herself fangs by hiring an orthodontist to file her teeth. She could still be guarded, though. At one point, I arranged a special advance screening of the Ed Wood biopic for her through contacts at Disney. Scarred by her past, Myla balked and became paranoid about my intentions. Though she was full of gossip from her time schooling the actress who played her, 
director Tim Burton's girlfriend, Lisa Marie. We lunched regularly at an Italian restaurant she liked, and once, for a special treat, I took her out to dinner at what remained of the Los Feliz Brown Derby. She wrote me a moving letter about our relationship, one I'll always keep. I think what sustained her in her later years wasn't the growth of the vampire cult, though that was exponential after a while. It was a relatively small group of admirers who started out as fans of the icon, but came to love the person instead. Because Myla, you know, had just such a difficult time um, with the business, that also made her pull back into herself. Myla's friend, Gabrielle Geiselman. If you made it past, you know, the moat <laughs> of that, then she would sort of allow you into the part of her that, where she felt comfortable telling you stories about things and she felt comfortable telling you about her experiences. But that was a very small group of people. Myla was complicated and surely ambitious once upon a time. I think she found in the end she had simpler needs. I attended Myla's funeral in 2008. It was a smaller affair than it might have been, perhaps 60 people or so, because it was closed to fans of Vampyra, but open to the friends of Myla near me. Still, it felt good to see that before she returned to whatever unique planet she came from, Myla had found so many companionable aliens to keep her company. When it comes to the Vampyra character, are you proud of the fact that the image you created has endured for so long? Oh yes, I am. Um... It's my child, you know, and you like to feel that your child has succeeded. Uh, I birthed her and, and nourished her and groomed her and sent her out into the world, <laughs> sent her to college. <laughs> I'm glad she succeeded in business. Vampira and Me was written, directed, and narrated by R.H. Green and produced by R.H. Green and John Raby for KPCC. Music from Schlock, The Secret History of American Movies by Johnny English. Interviews and narration are copyright 2010 by Protagonist Productions. For Off Ramp, I'm R.H. Green. Vampira and Me from R.H. Green was originally broadcast in 2010 and then turned into a film in 2012 of the same name, Vampira and Me. Hope you enjoyed it. It was pretty special. Happy 100th birthday, Myla Nurmi, wherever you are. Thank you for breaking ground. Thank you for being an interesting person. And not enough of you. Off-Ramp's back next week from Elias Studios. I'm John Raby. Thanks for listening. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.